You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 21st day of March, 2010. I'd like to welcome all the listeners back to the podcast and invite them, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and ClimateGate.tv, as well as those websites that help support and enable this podcast, including ZeroPointRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, Archive.org, RadioForAll.net, and TragedyAndHope.com. I'd like to take a moment once again to thank all of those who have sent in their donations in order to receive a copy of the 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline DVD-ROM special, And I would like to assure everyone that the DVDs will be arriving this week, hopefully, so that I can start distributing them this week. And as soon as they do come in, they will get turned around and sent right back out to each and every one of you. Once again, I've made my best effort to try to contact everyone who has made a donation so that I can confirm an address to ship the DVD to. But if I haven't gotten in touch with you yet, please get in touch with me, and I'll make sure that you do get your copy of the DVD. For those people out there who still have not yet contributed to the DVD drive, I would like to suggest that you do donate as every penny is valuable and very much needed to keep this operation growing and expanding. Also, for anyone who is listening to this 122nd episode of the Corbett Report podcast on the day of its release, the 21st of March, 2010, I'd like to invite you to join me tonight on Zoomer Radio AM740, blasting out of Toronto on 50,000 watts and reaching down south of the border all the way to New York and, I'm told, even Chicago, on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett at richardserrett.com, where we'll be talking about the 9-11 whistleblowers. This is an excellent opportunity to get the word out in a big way, and I understand there may even be time to take some callers. So if you are available tonight, please tune in on 7.40 a.m. in the greater Toronto area or at am740.ca where you can listen to the live stream at 11 p.m. Eastern Time until at least 12 o'clock and I think maybe even 12.30, depending how things go. So by all means, please take a listen to that. And, of course, check out Richard Serrett's website at richardserrett.com. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 21st day of March 2010. And now for the real news. Lawyers for four men indicted for allegedly planning to bomb a Jewish center in Riverdale, New York, have revealed that the entire scheme was concocted and planned by an FBI informant in the group. The defense in the case has filed a dismissal motion, citing the claim that Shahid Hussein was a paid FBI informant whose mission was to radicalize disaffected Muslims and recruit them to join a fake terror plot. The motion suggests that Hussein was provided with as much as $250,000 for the case and had a government-provided BMW, Hummer, and other cars to make him appear to be a well-funded foreign terrorist operative. The government well knew that their case had been a government-inspired creation from day one and that the defendants had not been independently seeking weapons or targets, the dismissal motion said. This development was by no means a surprise to analysts who have noted that every major domestic terror plot in the United States over the last two decades has been aided, abetted, funded, supplied, and often created by paid government informants. Eight years before bombs and nanothermite demolished the World Trade Center in New York, the original 1993 World Trade Center bombing was exposed as an FBI operation. The man who supplied the bomb-making materials to the bombers, a former Egyptian army officer named Imad Salem, was revealed to be an FBI informant who had been told to deliver the materials to the plotters. 
The original plan was to deliver fake material so that the bombing could not go ahead, but FBI agents overseeing the case ordered him to give the real supplies to the plotters, and the attack went ahead, killing six and injuring 1,042 people. In December of 1993, the head of the FBI New York field office, James N. Fox, issued a blanket denial that the FBI had foreknowledge of the attacks, and the media stopped reporting on the story. Since then, the actual recordings between Salem and his FBI handler, Special Agent John Antichev, have been released. It was start already building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center. It was built by uh, uh, supervising, uh, supervision from the Bureau and the GA, and we was all informed about it, and we know that the bombs start to be built. By who? By your confidential informant. What a wonderful, great case. Well. And then he put his head in the sand and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. He is son of a bitch. Okay, well. it's built with a different way in another place, and that's it. Well, don't make any risk. You know, I'm just trying to be as honest with you as I can. Of course, I and, appreciate that. And as far as the, uh, you know, the payments go and everything like that, they're there. I guarantee you that, that they are there. In 2007, convicted Oklahoma City bombing co-conspirator Terry Nichols was able to file an affidavit in U.S. District Court in Utah, alleging that the OKC bombing in Timothy McVeigh had been directed by a high-ranking FBI official. The affidavit indicated that Nichols had been trying to go public with the information about McVeigh's FBI help for years, but had been prevented from speaking to the press. He had also contacted former Attorney General John Ashcroft with the information, but never received a reply. In 2006, it was revealed that the so-called Miami 7, who had allegedly been attempting to strike targets in the U.S., including the Sears Tower, had in fact been organized, led, and supplied by a government informant who had convinced them that he was an Al-Qaeda operative. The case disappeared from the headlines after it became apparent that the men were in fact a group of unemployed underachievers with below-average cognitive abilities living in a warehouse. Unfortunately, because of the fine work of law enforcement, these men were unable to advance their deadly plot. A dreadful potential catastrophe averted. And clearly, government wouldn't bother to hold a press conference if this were not a major step in the war on terror, right? All right, so good night, everybody. And Oh, I'm sorry, uh, questions. Did the uh, 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 man to have any actual contact with any members of Al-Qaeda that you know of? Any... Yeah. The, the answer to that... The answer to that is no. Did you find any explosives, weapons? No, and you raise a good point. You do raise a good point. Uh, that point being that these deadly international terrorists had very slyly disguised themselves as a bunch of dip living in a warehouse. In 2008, the so-called Fort Dix terror plot was also revealed to be the single-handed creation of two FBI informants who created a plot to stir six foreign-born Muslims into taking on the U.S. Army at Fort Dix. The plot was foiled when the dim-witted conspirators asked a Circuit City employee to transfer their Jihad training video onto DVD and asked police for maps to the Fort Dix Army base. Analysts are expecting this latest revelation to also be quickly swept under the rug by the corporate media and for the next large-scale domestic terror bust to be reported as if none of these previous incidents ever took place. In other news this week, a judge has rejected a government-proposed settlement for Ground Zero first responders who are still dying from the toxic conditions on the pile in New York in late 2001. A preliminary deal in which the government sought to pay some 10,000 Ground Zero workers a total of $657 million was sent back to be renegotiated after Judge Alvin Hellerstein was set, said that the proposal was unfair. He noted that a third of the entire payout was to be paid to lawyers, not victims, and has said the 90-day time limit for accepting the proposal did not leave workers with enough time to consider the proposal. The claims stem from a series of incidents in which the government knowingly lied to the public about air conditions in Manhattan at the time. Mrs. Whitman went on national TV, smiled at the camera, and told everybody everything is safe, and it wasn't. As I say, you know asbestos was in there, is in those buildings, lead is in those buildings, there are the, the VOCs, however, the concentrations are such that they don't pose a health hazard. We're going to make sure everybody's safe. 
In 2007 hearings, EPA Chief Christine Todd Whitman and former OSHA Administrator John Henshaw were grilled by Congress over their statements about air quality, statements that neither were even willing to express remorse over. Do you now regret saying it was safe for New Yorkers to go back to work six days after the terrorist attack? Was that a mistake? Not within the financial district. On the pile was a different circumstance. Sir, I do not regret but that. But in the area around it, it was okay? We, all of our data indicated that it was okay. In other explosive 9-11 news this week, a letter to the 9-11 Commission from former Attorney General John Ashcroft, former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, and ex-CIA Director George Tenet has been leaked. The letter confirms what many researchers have known for years, namely that the 9-11 Commission was warned by the Bush administration not to probe too deeply into the treatment of detainees accused of terrorist activities. The letter reads in part, Quote, in response to the Commission's expansive requests for access to secrets, the executive branch has provided such access in full cooperation. There is, however, a line that the Commission should not cross. The line separating the Commission's proper inquiry into the September 11, 2001 attacks from interference with the government's ability to safeguard the national security, including protection of Americans, from future terrorist attacks. End quote. The warning is the smoking gun confirming what has long been known, that the 9-11 Commission was not allowed to address how much of the information in their report had been extracted from informants through torture. The Commission report infamously sources numerous claims back to the interrogation of alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, without addressing the fact that he was waterboarded hundreds of times during captivity, and that his children were held and tortured by the CIA to get KSM to talk. On a positive note, this has not been a good week for the banksters who engineered the current global financial meltdown by, among other things, pawning toxic subprime loans off as AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations. In the latest development, Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal has filed suit against ratings agencies Moody's, Corp, and Standard & Poor over the fact that they knowingly rated toxic subprime-backed junk paper as AAA investments. The companies said to investors that the ratings were objective and independent, knowing that they were very heavily influenced by methodologies that were skewed, compliance procedures that were defective, compensation structures that were flawed, all because they were catering to the investment banks and other issuers. Also emerging this week, Bernie Madoff has been assaulted in the North Carolina prison where he is being held for running a $50 billion Ponzi scheme. The scheme was allowed to continue by SEC investigators who covered up repeated warnings that Madoff was running a scam. Now it is being reported that an assault by another inmate in December of last year left Madoff with fractured ribs, facial and head lacerations, and a broken nose. In December of last year, it also emerged that Goldman Sachs was arming its workers in preparation for expected assault against its staff after an extensive McClatchy News investigation showed that Goldman had positioned itself to benefit from the housing collapse of 2007 and then made it happen. So far, no such violence against Goldman has been reported. Now stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 122 of the Corbett Report podcast, Hello Iceland, where we discover how that small nation has rebuffed foreign banksters and is positioning itself to become the world leader in the protection of free speech and online whistleblowing. In the mid to late part of the first decade of the 21st century, the tiny island nation of Iceland, population 320,000, seemed to have a lot going for it. In fact, it was throwing its weight around on the international financial scene in a way that was disproportionate to its tiny size, and people there were, by and large, living the good life. But all of that was to come to a screeching halt in September of 2008 with the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the beginning of the bursting of the housing bubble. As the dominoes started to fall in that Lehman Brothers collapse, Many analysts were surprised to see Iceland as one of the first and one of the hardest hit by this controlled demolition of the global economy. Perhaps no one was more shocked than the Icelandic people themselves, who went to bed one night thinking of themselves as a relatively wealthy population and woke up finding themselves destitute. 
and the grave nature of their situation was made plain on October 6th of 2008 when the nation's Prime Minister, H.E. Gear H. Hard, gave an address to the people of Iceland. Quote, Fellow Icelanders, I have requested the opportunity to address you at this time when the Icelandic nation faces major difficulties. The entire world is experiencing a major economic crisis, which can be likened to in its effects on the world's banking systems to an economic natural disaster. Large and well-established banks on both sides of the Atlantic have become victims of the recession, and governments in many countries are rowing for all they are worth to save whatever can be saved. In such circumstances, every nation thinks, of course, first and foremost of its own interests. Even the biggest economies in the world are facing a close struggle with the effects of the crisis. The Icelandic banks have not escaped this banking crisis any more than other international banks, and their position is now very serious. In recent years, the growth and profitability of the Icelandic banks has been like something akin to a fairy tale. Major opportunities arose when the access to capital on foreign money markets reached its peak, and the banks together with other Icelandic companies exploited these opportunities to launch into new markets. In recent weeks, the world's financial system has been subject to devastating shocks. Some of the biggest investment banks in the world have become the victims, and capital in the markets has in reality dried up. The effects have been that large international banks have stopped financing other banks, and complete lack of confidence has developed in business between banks. This has caused the position of Icelandic banks to deteriorate very rapidly in the last few days. End quote. Now, I would, of course, as always, encourage you to go and read that address in its entirety, but suffice it to say, those are the mealy-mouthed political whitewash mutterings of a prime minister who is basically admitting that his entire nation has gone bankrupt and that drastic, draconian measures are about to be implemented in order to pay the bankers their pound of flesh. That same week, several of Iceland's largest banks were nationalized and the sky, it seemed, was falling. Now, the prime minister in that address refers to an economic natural disaster, as if this is something that just came out of nowhere and took everyone by surprise. But when he starts talking about exploiting opportunities to launch into foreign money markets with access to easy capital, he lets slip a little bit about what this was really about and what really happened to the Icelandic nation. In reality, this was anything but a natural disaster. Once upon a time, a small band of Vikings found an island of ice and fire. It was a harsh but beautiful place, and for a thousand years they survived off the fish in the sea and the sheep in the meadows. Dirt poor but wildly creative. Iceland invented the saga, intricate tales of fairies and goblins, heroes and ghosts. And with these bright minds and strong backs, they evolved into one of the best educated and most comfortable societies on earth. A fine place to be a fisherman like Stefan, or a working mom like Inga. A place of democratic freedom and fairness for a prime minister like Gare, and a folk singer like Bubby. And then a modern saga began when the rulers of this place unleashed the bankers, allowing financial Vikings to search for plunder around the world. They made a few deals and brought home a fortune. They used it to borrow vast sums and make even bigger deals, buying soccer teams and airlines and grocery chains. They built banks in foreign lands and were hailed as heroes. Suddenly, in a country where, where, where you, you had never seen rich people, we had people who were, who were making a million dollars a month. Ships began to arrive filled with German cars and French wine. And their once humble currency with a fish on every coin became incredibly valuable. But while they could afford all sorts of foreign goodies, prices at home were going way up. So the island's rulers raised interest rates to control the inflation. But it didn't work, because people realized that they could borrow Japanese yen or Swiss francs, put it in Icelandic banks, and make 10% without even trying. Everybody was getting rich. Well, many people were. And suddenly, for the first time in a thousand years, Icelanders didn't need to chase cod to make money. They could make money with borrowed money. 
and boy could they make a lot of money. Stefan the fisherman left his boat and joined a bank. I got a bigger house, I got bigger and more cars and better snowmobiles. Have you heard these stories about fishermen who would sell their quotas and get into investment banking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And buying malls. <laughs> And buying malls. <laughs> yeah. Booby, the blue-collar folk singer, started selling his music for commercial. He became a judge on Icelandic Idol and began hanging out with those financial Vikings. And Inga and her husband began spending less time with the kids, more time at their bank jobs. Everyone had to have the largest cars, the biggest houses, and people our age, uh, around 30, they were just floating in money. I kind of felt like I had arrived in Paraswell in the movie it's it's a wonderful life everything had changed so much so fast during this party few people were concerned that Iceland's big banks had borrowed six times more than the entire nation produces in a year or that they had vested most of it in something from America called mortgage-backed securities after all a big bank in New York had done the same but when that bank crashed Iceland's economy followed almost overnight I lost a lot of money. <laughs> I, I, I lost my job. I owe a lot of money. I lost everything. I lost millions. Technically speaking, we are bankrupt. Like so many Icelanders, the value of their home collapsed almost instantly. And instead of owning much of their home, suddenly they owed the bank much more than it's worth. People look to their government for help, but they seem confused, paralyzed. <laughs> Crowds began to gather outside Parliament, growing bigger and angrier by the day. All kinds of people from all the different political parties, from all walks of life, people you had never seen protesting before. It's now known as the Pots and Pans Revolution. No injuries, few arrests, and instead of blood, streets ran with thrown food. But it was enough to force special elections. The Prime Minister replaced, and two protesters were voted into Parliament. You got it all. Yeah. <laughs> and now you are a member of parliament. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's amazing. So from, from out here to in there, yeah, in yeah. the space of a few months. Yeah. Some think testosterone is to blame for most of this. Unlike the rest of this gender-equal country, it was mostly men running those banks and taking those risks. So more women now share the power and will help guide the recovery. And there is so much to recover. Unemployment is high, malls are empty, grand projects silent and unfinished. Yes, well, try to imagine my surprise as it turns out that the hyenas, vultures, and parasites of finance capitalism literally bet the bank on the idea that this bubble would continue to expand indefinitely and that they would always have easy access to foreign capital markets and to easy credit, but... As soon as the bubble burst, guess who gets left holding the bag? Hint, it's not the banksters. Answer, it's the people of Iceland. And just when you thought that the parasites of financial capitalism couldn't get any more implicated in this, well, yes, along come the British and Dutch parasites to, to extract their pound of flesh from the Icelandic people. And... One of the ridiculous and unbelievable stories that just goes to show how ridiculous and unbelievable the entire situation was and is came from October 9th of 2008, just shortly after this whole collapse began, and a headline from Bloomberg.com, UK used anti-terrorism law to seize Icelandic bank assets. Quote, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling used anti-terrorism rules to take control of assets held in Britain by a troubled Icelandic bank. To protect UK economic interests, the government has frozen the funds and financial assets held by Land Banksy, Stephen Timms, Financial Secretary to the Treasury, said in Parliament in London Tuesday. The Treasury released a document to Parliament yesterday showing it used sections of the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act 2001 to take control of the bank's assets, saying in the statement the bank's collapse may harm the UK economy. End quote. So yes, the entire nation of Iceland became a terrorist threat to the UK because they had been the victims of this banking crisis. Yes, that makes 
perfect sense. Well, it certainly does when one realizes that the entire name of the game is to extract as much money as one possibly can from every and any possible target. And in this case, the target was most certainly the Icelandic people. And I will save the ins and outs of what happened over the following few months for you to go and research for yourself. Suffice it to say, it's an extremely interesting story, and you will not be disappointed if you do and go and take a look at that information for yourself. But let's fast forward just a few months to January of 2009 and the collapse of the former Icelandic government. 25th of January 2009, dailymail.co.uk. Iceland's senior minister resigns as government becomes first global political casualty of the credit crunch. Quote, Iceland's Minister of Commerce, Björgen Sigurdsson, has resigned two days after the Prime Minister announced his own departure due to pressures from the island nation's economic collapse. Mr. Sigurdsson, a member of Iceland's Junior Social Democrat Coalition Party, made the announcement at a news conference this morning. I have decided to do this to take responsibility, he said. Prime Minister Gerhard shocked the country on Friday when he said he would not seek re-election and called for a general election on May 9th. The government of Iceland became the first in the world to be effectively brought down by the credit crunch. It came after several nights of rioting over the financial crisis. A poll would not normally be held until 2011. End quote. Now, for those who have trouble understanding the enormity of that, yes, the Icelandic government itself was brought down through rioting over this unbelievable wholesale scorched-earth policy inflicted by the banksters, and then the government itself, which was capitulating in attempting to pay off the UK and Dutch banksters of the unfortunate Icelandic people. And the Icelandic people understandably moved to begin actually rioting in Reykjavik, of all places. And, of course, this is almost unthinkable in any other time in history, but in a crisis, what was formerly unthinkable becomes thinkable. And as we have seen in time and time again in this podcast, notably in podcast episodes like the one on problem, reaction, solution, this is something that the elite who are puppeteering and socially engineering our society know very well and know how to use for their own advantage. That is, to create problems in order to get people to react, revolt, riot, whatever the case may be, in order to propose their solutions. But just as the New World Order can use these types of crises to bring in the solutions they want, so these crises can also be moments when the population can be roused to move in ways that would never have been expected or even desired before. This is a moment when all bets are off the table and new forms of governance, new ways of thinking, and new ideas entirely suddenly become a reality. One example of that is what happened in the political sphere after this ridiculous, unbelievable Icelandic collapse. And, of course, as the government fell in January of 2009, it was not long before that vacuum was filled by some very, very different political movements. And, in fact, it was called The Movement, and was led by a very unlikely parliamentarian called Birgitta Jonsdotter. Now, that is almost certainly not how her name is pronounced, but that's the best that my Anglophile tongue can do, so you'll have to forgive me if you are in fact Icelandic or can speak Icelandic. I, you will have to put up with my butchering of the Icelandic tongue during this podcast. But Birgitta Jonsdotter led a remarkable movement to get a debt moratorium on the debt that was racked up in the name of the Icelandic people, although the Icelandic people, of course, for the most part, had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And we can get an example of what this was all about from an article that was written by Webster Griffin Tarpley in October of 2009, and which you can find on the official blog spot of Brigida Jonsdotter. It's from October 8th, 2009, and it's under the headline, Iceland political leader calls for debt moratorium as government crumbles. 
Quote, a leading member of the Icelandic parliament called Monday night for the country to declare a debt moratorium and stop attempting to pay the $6 billion which the British and Netherlands governments are seeking to extort from Iceland with the help of the International Monetary Fund and the European Commission in Brussels. This dramatic call was issued by Birgitta Jonsdotter, the chairman of the parliamentary faction of The Movement in the Icelandic parliament, the Althing. Birgitta Jonsdotter was speaking during a special session of the Althing called to address the rapidly deteriorating economy and financial position of Iceland one year after the collapse of the three hot-money offshore banks, Landsbanki, Kaupting, and Glitner. In her remarks, Birgitta Jonsdotter observed that Iceland is already technically bankrupt and ought to cease payment. She also pointed to the hostility to Iceland of the IMF and EU. The current Prime Minister, Johanna Sigurdotor, who leads a moribund coalition of Social Democrats and Left Greens, had attempted to justify her policy of financial appeasement of the British and Dutch. London and The Hague are demanding $6 billion in restitution for losses incurred by private Icelandic bankers operating in their countries as ICE-SAVE, even though the Icelandic government had never guaranteed these operations, and even though British and Dutch regulators were deeply implicated in the ice-save debacle, which came in the wake of the Lehman Brothers' bankruptcy. The sum demanded by the British and the Dutch from Iceland in an operation spearheaded by the widely hated UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown would amount to about half of the yearly gross domestic product of Iceland, a country with about 330,000 inhabitants. If the Anglo-Dutch were attempting to perform a proportional extortion on the United States, they would be demanding about $8 trillion. The British and Dutch are also determined to collect at least 5.5% compound interest, meaning that Iceland's obligation would grow over time, even if substantial payments were made. If the politically desperate Brown and his Dutch retainer Balkanende got their way, Icesave would turn into Ice Slave, a future of poverty unemployment, depopulation, and national collapse for Iceland, which could never pay the sums being demanded. Brigitte Jonsdotter's The Movement faction is the product of a mass strike upsurge which gripped Iceland from October 2008 to January 2009, with frequent large-scale demonstrations against the previous right-wing coalition government, which had imposed the monetarist deregulation of the Icelandic banking system, leading to the banking crisis of last autumn. Brigitte Jonsdotter and her associates were originally elected as part of a larger group called the Civic Movement, from which they split when the Civic Movement took a course of opportunism. Birgitte Jonsdotter has now placed the question of a debt moratorium squarely on the international agenda. Her courageous move shows that small countries can move world history by providing leadership for humanity in times of crisis when existing institutions are increasingly paralyzed and corrupt. In recent months, political forces in the Philippines and Sri Lanka has raised the question of debt moratoria, as has the leaders of UNCTAD. With the news coming from Iceland, the formation of an international debtors cartel to confront London, Wall Street, and the IMF has suddenly become a real possibility. End quote. Now that is extremely exciting and is really worthy of its own episode just to go into the details of how the movement came about and what this debt moratorium idea really entails. Well, we'll get a little bit more into an update on the debt moratorium idea later in this episode, but in fact, this episode is not about the economic collapse in Iceland, nor about the movement and the debt moratorium idea, nor is it even really about the people rioting and revolting and overthrowing the government when the government decides to sell its own people into slavery to the banksters for a debt that they did not create, all of which is extremely interesting and, as I say, should be its own episode and maybe one day will be. But amazingly enough, this episode today is not about that. It's about something else. And this goes back to the idea of when all of the bets are off the table in these times of crisis, things can come out of left field that one would never have expected.
Welcome back. We're going to take a longer look now at a story that we touched on last week in Iceland. It's about a proposed new law called the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, or IMMI. It's not the law there yet, but it's already caught the attention of journalists, civil rights organizations, and media all over the world. The idea behind IMMI is simple, but it's ambitious. Bring together some of the most progressive media laws from many different countries to create one holistic law that will position Iceland at the forefront of the battle to protect journalists, whistleblowers, and their sources from repressive libel laws. But can one legal initiative in one country offer protection from libel charges for embattled journalists in Sri Lanka, bloggers in Egypt, or authors around the world? The Listening Post Meenakshi Ravi now on a media movement that's working towards creating a safe haven for investigative journalists everywhere. Iceland seems an unlikely place to come to to escape libel chill, the threat of legal action against journalists. But that's what this proposed law aims to achieve. This legislation is based on legislation from around the world, good legislation that has proven itself. It's an interesting experiment trying to uh, gather best practices from around the world. A range of laws um, on protection of libel, protection of sources. So I guess that it will work both for Icelandic journalists and foreign media, probably the same. The proposal has been just six months in the making. Its genesis can be traced back to a news broadcast last August. Iceland's economy was still reeling from the 2008 banking meltdown when RUV, the national broadcaster, tried and failed for legal reasons to get a banking story on the air. Five minutes before we went on air, we got an injunction. Our presenter wanted to say to the viewers, here are the stories of the night, or at least the stories that we're allowed to bring. Iceland's largest bank, Kapfing Bank, had obtained an injunction on a big story. It was about a document that had been posted on WikiLeaks, a website that's made its name as the go-to site for whistleblowers around the world. Julian Assange is one of the founders of the site. On July 31st, 2009, WikiLeaks released a document about the Kerbting Bank, the Kerbting Loan Book. But before they could broadcast it at 7pm, an injunction landed on the news desk. Uh, that injunction forbade Roof from telling the Icelandic public about the leak. However, the documents can be found on WikiLeaks, and then we had a graphic which basically showed the website address. So the Icelandic public uh, became enraged that they were being denied this important information. And the political fallout of that moment is something that pushed this forward. This is the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, known to Icelanders as IMI. The people behind IMI envisioned a single piece of legislation to prevent a repeat of RUV's experience in August 2009. The idea to protect journalists and whistleblowers through a media super law that would safeguard not just Icelandic media outlets, but bloggers, journalists, authors and their sources around the world. The group scoured the statutes of countries like Belgium, France, Scotland and the United States for the strongest legal wording on issues like source protection, protection of communications, protection from unfair libel charges, and lumped them into a proposal for a single law. One last aspect is crucial, allowing news organizations and journalists from overseas to access computer servers in Iceland to host sensitive content in order to try to keep them beyond the reach of repressive governments and courts. A lot of the companies that run these internet service providers are very, very small. They don't have legal departments. So people who feel that they've been libeled or defamed will come after not you, actually, but your ISP. If, again, you had a country where that just couldn't happen, then that would offer up an awful lot of help for people running small websites, small investigative teams, and then maybe eventually the larger ones. As I say, it is a bit out of left field, and the link between an economic collapse like what we've seen in Iceland over the past year and a half and the rise of a grassroots movement to change laws to become a whistleblowing safe haven. Well, th that line is not so clear or easy to connect whatsoever, but let's be glad that it has been connected because if there's anything that I've been trying to instill in my listeners at least over the last few weeks, if not over the course and duration of this podcast, it's the importance of supporting the people who are bringing out inside information through things like WikiLeaks. 
Now, again, this is a topic that we've been touching on recently, but in order to figure out how Iceland connects in with WikiLeaks and the idea of online whistleblowing and what type of infrastructure we're talking about setting up, perhaps it would be beneficial at this point to take a look at a presentation that was made in December of 2009 by two of the WikiLeaks editors, Julian Assange and Daniel Schmidt. They gave a wide-ranging speech about WikiLeaks and its possible future and the opportunities that are out there for an online entity like WikiLeaks to grow and to foster a genuine revolution in journalism, as indeed even in its short history it has already done, having provided thousands upon thousands of leaked and sensitive documents that would never have seen the light of day if it wasn't for this type of decentered internet online phenomenon. So given just how incredible WikiLeaks has been over its short history, what do they have in store for the future? Well, of course, I would recommend people go to the documentation list for today's episode at CorbettReport.com and take a look at this video in its entirety. But right now, we're going to listen to a short excerpt from this presentation, which was given in December of 2009, about WikiLeaks' future and the IMMI idea, including how WikiLeaks relates to Iceland. Now... For now, it's not entirely clear if we can bring across this whole idea here within this short talk, but this is a very, very serious idea. I want to have that said. It's not just spontaneous, and there's a lot of momentum behind it already, and anyone who feels that what we're trying to introduce here is interesting should talk to us afterwards, because we need a lot of people, and there's only a small window of opportunity to do something like this. So, okay, but what is the Offshore Publication Center? So it would provide a specialized set of laws, same as the finance center. So we could just say we're taking the source protection laws from, uh, from Sweden, for example, that exist. They are proven laws accepted by society as established in a, in, in a country. We could take the First Amendment from the United States. We could take Belgium protection laws for journalists. And we could all pack these together in one bundle and Make it, a fit, make, make it fit for the first jurisdiction that offers the necessities of an information society. <laughs> Everyone in this room should understand that all of these freedoms in respect to information are really at stake at the moment. These people are upgrading all the time. They are going from nation states to Europe and it's going international and we have the ACTA stuff and whatnot and they're trying to, to get to our information on all possible ways. So we thought we just have to upgrade as well maybe and go from the defense to the attack and create something that is fit, create a Switzerland of bits. So, when Julian mentioned that for the first time, uh, we talked about this for a bit and it seemed like a very interesting thought experiment. And then we were in Iceland, and when we arrived in Iceland, we found out that uh, the largest political TV show wants us as guests. It's a Sunday show that apparently almost everyone uh, work, uh, looks, watches. So we just thought, why not drop the idea on that Sunday TV show as a new business model for Iceland? <laughs> and, So we did, and in the show, the guy sitting uh, 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 opposite to us, he was just lighting up in his face when he heard this. <laughs> and the next day, basically everyone in, Island, in Iceland wanted to talk about it. We had radio interviews, we had uh, newspaper interviews, everyone wanted to know more. We met with a press uh, union, and we talked to a lot of people living in Iceland, and they all see why this could be of use to them. But we'll talk about why Iceland is a good place maybe in a bit. What does this mean for all of you? This is something that is uh, important to understand. Right now, there is a potential to actually pull this thing off in Iceland. Uh, we have started it. Lawyers in Iceland are working on a bill that will be introduced on the 26th of January. Um, Uh, 
And this could provide the first counter step, the first safe haven where everyone else is trying to erode all our freedoms. So we could have the, the opposite. And there is an opportunity that we could make sure by this that all our voices are not being silenced by anyone and that all our information at least has a last resort where we could push it to. So why Iceland? Maybe that is something we need to elaborate on. I'm glad this is getting such positive reception. Yes, no, this is important. <laughs> this reception is very important because this will need everyone's support. Yes, uh, that is true. Despite the fact that uh, we uh, have met with uh, cross-party uh, MPs, including from the government in Iceland, and there's now even uh, MPs in the Icelandic parliament uh, of 63 who wear WikiLeaks badges when they're speaking. There's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, plenty of geopolitical incidences that could happen to derail it. So uh, it needs careful uh, planning and thought and people to not lose energy uh, or momentum. Um, so this uh, crisis in Iceland uh, in the banks resulted in a 50% uh, reduction in the, the price of the Icelandic currency, which was then totally frozen as a tradable currency at all. So who knows where it, it actually is. So that shock uh, created a quasi-revolutionary environment in Iceland. And you had, for the first time since uh, Iceland joined uh, NATO, <coughs> uh, riots in the streets. And this, this is riots in the streets. Reykjavik has 200,000 people. So, um, and st a storming of parliament and a uh, change of government in April and new MPs uh, being elected. Uh, so this is a country which is also used to getting things done very quickly in a legislative sense. And that's the same reason that these offshore financial uh, havens are little countries. That you can uh, quickly get through a new package of laws because you don't have to harmonise with a whole bunch of existing laws because there just aren't a whole bunch of existing laws. And there isn't a great big lobbies in the country. Um, so yes, you could, you could probably do healthcare in Iceland in a week. Um, <laughs> Not 30 years like in the US. Actually, it probably won't be done there either. Um, so when uh, people are involved in a crisis, they see um, that actually all the things that you thought were important aren't so important anymore. And the standard of what you can do, because you've seen a whole bunch of bad people, in this case, do bad things, changes. Now, to be sure, that was a rather wide-ranging introduction to the general topic of an Icelandic modern media initiative. But let's transfer and get into some of the specifics about this proposal and, and what is actually being proposed. And in order to do so, let's go to the homepage, imi.is, I-M-M-I.is. And on the frequently asked questions section, there is this question, what is included in the proposal? So I'll just read through that. Quote, the Icelandic Prize for Freedom of Expression, an ultra-modern Freedom of Information Act, whistleblower protections, source protection, source journalist communications protection, limiting prior restraint, protection of intermediaries, internet service pro providers, protection from libel tourism and other extrajudicial ab abuses, statute of limitations on publishing liabilities, process protections, virtual limited liability companies. End quote. Now, I hope that at least gives a hint about what is really possible with this type of wide-ranging proposal and the idea of having a safe haven for media and journalists and sources and whistleblowers, e even if it's in a tiny island North Atlantic nation, which very few people have ever visited. This is something that truly can affect change worldwide and is being implemented right now. In fact, it is being debated in committee and is set to come for a vote in the Icelandic parliament next month. This is a very, very exciting proposal, and it was with great excitement that I was able to talk to one of the advisors of the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, Professor Salvor Gisherdotr, sorry for the pronunciation, of the University of Iceland. Professor Salvor 
and I am assured by Professor Selvor that that is in fact the correct way to address her, because in Iceland, Gisherdotter would not be the family name, but just a name denoting the fact that she is from Gisher, her father. But at any rate, Professor Selvor is uh, at the University of Iceland in the School of Education and teaches about educational technology and the use of computers and internet in education, and as such is someone who has a very great inter interest in the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative and serves as an advisor to IMI. So I recently had the chance to talk to her via webcam, and the results of that interview are not only downloadable from the interviews tab of the homepage as an mp3 audio file, but can also be seen at youtube.com slash Report in video form. Right now, let's listen to a short excerpt where I talk to Professor Salvor about the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative. For example, I believe the uh, Icelandic national broadcaster, RUV, was attempting to do a story about the banking crisis, but was prevented from doing so because of uh, it was using leaked documents for its reporting. And cases like that have have spurred people to, to get behind this Icelandic modern media initiative. So maybe you can tell us about that and, and what, what pe people are proposing and, and why this is so important for not just Iceland, but the, the entire world, really. It is uh, in Iceland there, there are the same kind of laws as as in other places of Europe that uh, you know libel uh, there are libel laws but but also uh, uh, and you can the the people that uh, have uh, something to do with it they can they can like in this case they. Uh, didn't allow the the they called the lovers and uh, told that the media couldn't uh, put on air some news about the company. Even if there was a crisis in Iceland, even if we, the citizens of Iceland, were uh, supposed to pay the debt of this bank, we weren't allowed to any information about what was happening and what uh, caused this to happen. And the only, only thing, the, the information that we got was a link that was on the Icelandic uh, television linked to WikiLeaks, so we had to rely upon information from outside. And oh, uh, just to say, uh, the libel laws are even if the libel laws are relatively relaxed in Iceland, so so it's not it's not big amount of money. The libel, the the Icelandic citizen, businessman, they can go to Britain and they can file a, a lawsuit there. And they did that, for, for example, uh, against my, my, my brother, and he lost his house because of that. So it's really affecting everyone, this media situation. This proposal includes a, a lot of different provisions, in, including uh, whistleblower protection and source protection, uh, liability, uh, uh, I'm sorry, libel uh, tourism protection, uh, many different aspects, including even a, a, a freedom of expression prize to be awarded by the Icelandic government each year. Uh, a lot of very interesting and innovative proposals. Uh, tell us about uh, what, what excites you about this proposal. Um, it is uh, the protection of, of people that come forward as whistleblowers and also that you, that you can uh, express yourself and without somebody with that that has much better resources than you have that goes to London for example and can sue you for uh, and whatever in the in the world so this libel tourist this is not something that I can take uh, advantage of or, or the citizens it is for the rich people and uh, those those people that own banks they have the they have a heart of lawyers and um, the ordinary citizens is even the situation in Iceland, for example, is such that those are the people that own the banks. They control uh, also uh, the lawsuits that, that, that are they that has, have all the lawyers. So I'm mo mostly excited about um, libel uh, to, to uh, that you cannot use libel tourism in Iceland. 
once again, Professor Salvor of the University of Iceland. And I would once again wholeheartedly recommend that everyone goes to check out more information about this proposal at immi.is. Now, just in case, even with all of the foregoing having been said, and all of the different episodes in this podcast's history having been produced, if you still need to be convinced that this is something of importance, well, nothing proves importance better than opposition from high places, and it doesn't get much higher than this. From techworld.com, 15th of March 2010, U.S. military plotted revenge on WikiLeaks considered using site to spread propaganda. Quote, The U.S. military was so fearful of classified information ending up on WikiLeaks, it considered ways to undermine the organization, a newly published secret report on the site appears to show. In an ironic twist, WikiLeaks has now published what appears to be an assessment of the site and the danger it poses to U.S. military confidentiality, apparently from the U.S. Army and Counterintelligence Center and dated 18th of March 2008. Most of the report is a measured analysis of the site's activities, modus operandi, funding, and history, which then details numerous documents allegedly leaked to WikiLeaks relating to U.S. military activities in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond that it sees as having handed intelligence to agencies hostile to the U.S. Eventually, however, the document turns to possible countermeasures, including placing fabricated information as a means of discrediting its reliability, spreading propaganda, and of prosecuting anyone within the U.S. military intelligence or government departments found leaking to it. The identification, exposure, termination of employment, criminal prosecution, legal action against current or former insiders, leakers, or whistleblowers could potentially damage or destroy this center of gravity and deter others considering similar actions, it notes. End quote. Now, I suppose the question is, will we let such activities deter our actions, because rest assured, what is happening in Iceland right now does have global import, and for that very reason, there are some very important players on the global stage who are not only keeping an eye on Iceland, but no doubt trying to have a hand in what is happening there. Because if Iceland can become a safe haven for journalists and whistleblowers and sources of all kinds, then the very economic crisis inflicted by the banksters on the people of Iceland may turn into one of the biggest victories for the people in recent history. And that is a very real possibility, and one that the elite obviously would not like to see to come to fruition. But just as a sample of what can be accomplished and what the people can take back, we have this incredible story from the 8th of March 2010. Iceland rejects ice save referendum from rte.ie. Quote, Iceland's president bounced the ball back into Gordon Brown's court after voters overwhelmingly rejected a plan to pay Britain and the Netherlands billions for losses in the ice save bank collapse. Icelandic president Olafur Ragnar Grimson, whose refusal to sign the compensation bill voted through parliament in December led directly to the referendum, challenged Britain's prime minister to settle the matter. Gordon Brown should now step forward and ensure the next steps to guarantee a solution that everyone can accept, he said. Final results yesterday of the weekend referendum on the deal showed that 93.2% of voters had rejected it. That sent Iceland's government back into talks with London and The Hague to find a solution more acceptable to the country's voters. End quote. The people have spoken. And this is only the first step. The question is, will you join with the people of Iceland in creating the next step, not only for Iceland, but for the world? That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 123 of the Corbett Report. Meet Smedley Butler.